For this evening, we'd like to explore the theme of bringing metta into the world, into our daily lives. And we'll probably talk this evening a little bit more about bringing metta into the different parts of our lives in the world. And tomorrow morning, a little give a little more specific guidance for daily life practice, the transition from the retreat, and so forth. And uh, so tonight, uh, I'll talk for about 20 minutes. Uh, Spring will talk about 20 minutes. And then we'll have uh, about 15 or 20 minutes for dialogue and discussion among ourselves, a chance to reflect or to ask some questions and we may, we may uh, bring up some of what uh, has been asked of us in terms of the notes. So just uh, so a little, little bit dialogue, not the conventional model of the, the talk exactly tonight. So there's a beautiful poem, which some of you know, I, I, I imagine, by the poet Rilke. It's a poem which really expresses the nature of our metta practice and the way that one of the trajectories of metta practice is that we start with self and we bring the practice increasingly uh, towards other beings, ultimately to all beings, as in our training here at the retreat. And then, of course, in our lives, we bring the metta practice into all the different parts of our lives, into uh, more complex aspects of life than we experience here, into relationships, dialogue, meetings, organizations, work, families, communities, the world, and so forth. And so we want to give a little bit of uh, guidance for that, but I wanted to read this wonderful poem first, and it's called uh, Widening Circles by, by the poet Rilke. Written over 100 years ago. I live my life in widening circles that reach out across the world. I may not complete this last one, but I give myself to it. I circle around God, around the primordial tower. I've been circling for thousands of years and I still don't know, am I a falcon, a a storm, or a great song? I still don't know, am I a falcon, a storm, or a great song? So I want to explore those widening circles, just very briefly, talk some about uh, individual practice, talk some about bringing the practice into the relational parts of our lives, and then talk probably a little more briefly about bringing metta practice into the more collective dimension of our lives, the social dimension, the community of all beings, ultimately. I think it's quite important that we start with metta for self. And in a sense, uh, 
we, you know, we train where the metta can flow most easily. Another one of the trajectories is that we train not just in going from self to others to all beings, but we, another trajectory is we train where metta flows the easiest, is the most accessible, and we bring the metta into more challenging situations, as in the difficult person practice. You know? um, and there's a way in which to really be with others and to help others, there has to be a kind of metta for self. It's quite, quite uh, important that there's a relationship as we cultivate metta for self. I think, I think you said that pretty much, Spring, last night, that it's very hard to love another if we don't love ourselves. That it, if, that's, if we don't love ourselves, then the expressions of care and love uh, can be distorted by uh, one's neediness or possessiveness or something. And sometimes that's just the case and it's, it's okay, we work with it. But the, there's this beautiful relationship between uh, practicing with metta for self, which again, Spring really gave so much emphasis to how that's such, so critical in our culture, right? That self-compassion and self-love are challenging for most of us, for many of us, certainly. You know, and self-judgment uh, and um, the barriers to self-love are there for many of us. And so it's, it's a big part of our practice. And as that, uh, and so it's very, very central and crucial for bringing the metta more into the world, more into our relationships, can be uh, really a, a focus for, for, for many people I know. Their primary metta practice for a long time was just metta for self you know, whether retreats or practice, and very, very crucial. And um, when that has some degree of completion, or maybe not completion, but when we've succeeded some to opening up that sense of love for self, then the love for others opens up. And there's a very uh, powerful passage in the Discourses of the Buddha where the Buddha says this, I visited all quarters with my mind. I did not find any dearer than self. I found none dearer than myself. Self is likewise to every other dear who loves oneself will never harm another. I first heard that about 10 years ago, maybe 12 years ago from my colleague Guy Armstrong, the last line, who loves oneself will never harm another. And it had, it was kind of electric. Maybe, maybe it had some impact right now for you. It was pretty electric because I had been concerned for many, many years of understanding the relationship between individual healing and social change, probably like, like many of you. And this statement was very, very powerful. And it really, it really, you know, you can actually work with it in a lot of different ways. Who loves oneself will never harm another. It, it also made me reflect that maybe those who harm another have deficits in self-love. Right? 
and that actually teaching self-love can be a major pivot for social change. Actually pretty radical, you know. And it kind of goes against the way we usually think about these things. And it's not, it's not an either or, we also can do other things, you know, to help the world. But this way that uh, metta and metta for self can have a power that we may not have reflected on, you know, to really, and, and so it is being brought into situations of young people who have been caught up in violence. And it can be a radical change. Some of you may have seen there was a series quite a number of years ago by Bill Moyers. It was about violence. It was particularly about youth violence. And um, there were interviews with uh, teenagers who had killed another person, often typically to other teenagers. And the interviews with them almost in, almost uniformly brought out something like this statement, I was really hurting. I wanted someone else to know how much pain I was in. You know, and I know that social scientists have found that the greatest single correlate of youth violence is that violence has been done to those people. You know, and so how do you break the cycle? How do you break those cycles? And metta can become very, very powerful. And so we, you know, we practice, uh, we practice in this way. We, um, you know, develop metta to self. And I invite you to explore that, you know, to see whether that's true for you. Is there a way that when there's more metta for self, the relations with others are quite different? Very, very powerful, very powerful pivot. And we, we, you know, some of the um, individual work we do becomes very important for being with others. One, one piece which I think neither of us have mentioned, um, even though we, we've emphasized a lot the importance of connecting metta with the body. And there's something that's been really important for me, which is that that connection of the mind and wisdom and the heart and metta and the body is a really crucial one. That mature metta practice really integrates the wisdom and as Spring was um, exploring last night and the metta and the body. And I know my own conditioning was, you know, was to have a pretty open heart, but not always to be so grounded, not always to be so connected with my body. And so I found I could easily kind of have a kind heart and be knocked around a lot. Maybe many of you have had similar experiences, you know, to be kind of be open and things happen and kind of I lose my center and the emotion, you know, I just get the openness can't handle what comes in sometimes, right? And I have found that really central is finding that balance with the wisdom and the, the um, heart and then that grounding, you know, and I actually, for myself, over the years, a lot of body practice, a lot of meditative and other kinds of body practices, including uh, having, developing that sense of the center. So it's kind of like grounding and centering. And so, you know, some of you know, in martial arts, one really develops the sense of the center in Japanese called the hara, you know, a little bit below the belly button and have that be a center. And I have found 
when that body presence is developed along with the heart and the clear mind, there can be much more stability. And the heart, you know, we don't get quite so knocked around. So really an important point for, particularly for being in the world, being with challenging situations, something really, really uh, crucial. So we bring, you know, we gradually bring the uh, metta practice into our relationships. You know, a really crucial area that we'll explore a little bit more tomorrow is bringing metta into our speech and communication. Really big, right? And so that metta isn't simply a matter of uh, being on the cushion. When you look to the actual teachings that the Buddha gave about speech and communication, what we sometimes call right speech or wise speech, metta's right there. There are four guidelines for um, skillful speech, for right speech. The four guidelines are to be truthful, to be helpful, to come out of the warm heart, that's metta, and then to have good timing. Very important. (laughs) You know, the key is that all four have to be there. You can have, be incredibly truthful, have, be incredibly helpful, come out of the most beautiful heart of metta, and if you have bad timing, it's a big mess. (laughs) You know, so quite quite crucial. And and that's a training itself, to develop those qualities. You know, when I, I once worked with a group cultivating right speech for about six months. And we just focused on one at a time for like a month at a time and then did some integration. So you can do that. You could really focus that way. And sometimes, um, you know, sometimes at the end of retreats, we give some time for people to talk. And we don't, we actually maybe mention those four guidelines, but we often simplify. And this, here are the, you know, I actually do a speech and communication retreat that takes a week and we have like 35 hours of material, right? And here's what the Tibetans call the pith instruction, which I can express in 10 seconds, okay? Save you a week of retreat. Okay, here it is. And this is something that I wanted to say also for um, tomorrow morning. Um, if you if you speak some, and maybe you found this in the groups, because sometimes after a retreat, even... The, uh, the length of, of hours, sometimes you speak and it's hard, you know, and the energy can go up to the head and it can feel confusing. That's, that's normal. That's natural. So here's the complete, short, essential instructions for metaphor speech. Okay? Stay in your body and your heart. End of instructions. Okay. Now, quite seriously, to stay in one's body, it's a grounding, and to come out of the heart. And if you only remember that, not just tomorrow morning, but in the world, it goes such a long way. You know, again, there are a lot of beautiful teachings about cultivating empathy and developing the warm heart and a lot of skillful ways to do that. But remember that instruction is a short instruction and goes a very, very long way. And that, that's, what I'll, that's what we'll really urge for um, tomorrow morning.
This is from a mutual friend of ours who's on the Teachers Council, Temple Smith. Um, I did this uh, book uh, a few years ago called The Engaged Spiritual Life about connecting inner work with social service and social change, which is out there on the table. And I interviewed Temple for that that book and uh, interviewed him about the way that he brought metta into the world. So I wanted to read this. It's a really beautiful passage. Uh, He had been a monk in Asia and had come back, done quite a bit of metta practice. He said, I remember sitting in the Berkeley Hills after a three-month metta retreat. I could see all of Berkeley, Oakland, and San Francisco. In the past, I had seen myself as a quote-unquote nature lover. Urban settings typically got my mind going in negative directions. (laughs) But this time I had different thoughts looking at this large urban area and thinking, oh my God, so many people to love. (laughs) So many people I can see. In the past I would usually look at cars and feel bad about pollution. But I thought, I can see individual people going about their lives. It's not abstract. I can really take in millions of people in this view. And I really do wish the best for every single one of them. What I found was that these thoughts didn't just come and go. Rather, they stayed and grew. I felt energy coming into my mind and body about how to be in the Bay Area and relate to that many people. To practice metta in a retreat was for me a strong and clear indicator of what the heart's potential is. It changed so many of my views about the world. Previously, I had a huge list of what was bad about humanity. My list of what was good was pretty short. After the retreat, I could more readily see the beauty in people, being very touched by the beauty of watching a father holding his daughter while she slept on public transportation. To be relatively free of aversion for this retreat time changed my whole motivation for being active and activism, which previously had been uh, fueled by anger, frustration, and judgment. Metta changed all that. And so we bring the metta into our work. And again, remembering that the metta is both the practice and it's just the spirit of being kind and being helpful. And it manifests in all sorts of ways that don't necessarily, as you know, have to do with saying phrases. It's just bringing that energy. Or you could be to ask like that uh, little quote I gave from Julia Butterfly Hill, is my action coming out of metta? Can I approach this meeting this difficult conversation with metta. So just a few words to close about bringing uh, metta into the larger world. Um, We can do that in so many ways. And I think many, many people doing metta has a a big impact and really develops, uh, develops that energy of metta you know, and there have been uh, there have been people also who have brought that spirit of metta into the world in, in, on a larger scale. You know, I think of people like Dr. King, or um, or Gandhi, or people doing service work, uh, Dorothy Day, Mother Teresa, and so forth. Probably many of you just having that spirit of metta come continually. And so let me see where this is. Um, I was thinking about meeting friends from Thailand who as active in the world did metta a lot. Some of them spent time in prison. 
and they would do metta in the prison to prevent their hearts from hardening towards the people they were opposed to. This is from uh, Dr. King. Prior to reading Gandhi, I had concluded that the ethics of Jesus about love were only effective in individual relationships. The turn the other cheek philosophy and the love your enemies philosophy were only valid, I thought, when individuals were in conflict with other individuals. But when racial groups and nations were in conflict, a more realistic approach seemed necessary. But after reading Gandhi, I saw how utterly mistaken I was. Gandhi was probably the first person in history to lift the love ethic above mere interaction between individuals to a powerful and effective social force on a large scale. You know, so to the extent that we engage more fully, metta can really be, can really be a force. That's really a force in whatever we do. So just to end with two short readings. This is from the writer uh, Eudora Welty. She said, my continuing passion is to part a curtain, that invisible veil of indifference that falls between us and that blinds us to each other's presence, each, o- each other's wonder, each other's human plight. To part a curtain, the invisible veil of indifference, you know, as we have the metta get stronger. And then just to end with um, another, this is a poem by um, Dina Metzger, very short poem. It's about the challenges of the world. There are those who are trying to set fire to the world. We are in danger. There is time only to work slowly. There is no time not to love. There are those who are trying to set fire to the world. We are in danger. There is time only to work slowly. There is no time not to love. Thank you. Thank you, Donald. That's very touching, that poem. I also want to welcome Donald's mother, Bernice, uh, to our group tonight. She just turned 90. I was telling her how beautiful she looked. I was like, wow, 90 is the new 70. (laughs) (laughs) Quite, just to welcome you. (laughs) Yes. And then it was just sweet to listen to Donald and then when he shared about temple, temple's a dear friend. And then my mind started spontaneously doing meta for temple, like, oh, temple. <laughs> he was just a beautiful teacher and friend. Uh, so I think I just want to add a couple of things and then we'll have time for some questions and answers. And I think this was something that Donald and I reflected on together about what would be something good to offer the last night and many notes, uh, I have many, were about how do I take this home into my everyday life? How do I live this? You know, the, this is the live this truth part, right? You know, the rubber meets the road when we're in our house tomorrow, right? <laughs> Did this matter work, <laughs> right? <laughs> Husband here, kids here, right? <laughs> Stressors there, you know, how do we, how do we respond And, you know, there's a certain humility to our whole life. You know, when we, we leave a retreat and, you know, we have a certain sensitivity and 
We'll talk about that a lot tomorrow and ways to kind of take care of yourself. Like, don't go to a party, go on a nice walk in nature, you know. But then for some people, they start work tomorrow or the day after or, you know, and there's, there's sort of, there's no time. And so how do we live this? I think just to say a couple of things of advice um, about living this and on multiple levels. One is that we really have to slow down. We cannot go the speed that we normally go and, and have such an open heart. I think it's very difficult. There's something about a manic about we get in a, a, an energetic kind of frenzy. You know, we all like getting our coffee and looking at our phones and our schedules and getting in the car and doing all of that at the same time and, and going here and there. And there's a certain kind of frenetic restlessness. Have you felt today was such a stilling in here? I could feel it. It was like, ah, now we're, get, we're really getting still now, right? So that's the beauty of what happens with practice is, you know, we go, I think Angelus Arian, or I think that's her name, Ain. The activist, yeah. yeah. She said, try, try now going at the speed of life. You know, like, like as things grow, you know, that speed. You know, everything's taking its time. So, so it's important that you'll be more successful if you slow down a bit. You know, that we don't drive straight out of here and go straight on the email and go straight. You know, like there's a way that we really incorporate slowing down. Like, can I be slow? You know, the slow movement is a big movement, right? Slow food, slow this, slow that, right? It's like, can we be slower? <laughs> like, turn it down a gear. That will help us listen to our heart and feel more connected. More pauses before we speak is always helpful, right? And that comes from just sitting, listening, being. So that's something that I have found has been very helpful, just to slow down to listen, to build in more time of stillness, um, to reflect, to reflect on our own, what is our value too, our values that we cherish in our world, what do we care about, and really continue to question that. I think metta, the seeds sprout and we water them, and when we're really connected to our heart, I notice a lot of beauty comes from that place. Right? We create things in the world when we're intuitive. There's a certain way which meta, when we're, when we're in our body and we're following, there's this heart, a heart path. You know, There's an intuitive uh, tone that can guide us. But it takes a, a certain paying attention. So we learn that. We can practice that in our life. Our life is the retreat. We have to, at some point, bring these compartmentalized worlds together. You know, when I was very young, I would go on retreat, and it was like, life on retreat, and life at home. They seemed a million miles apart, right? And I would sort of go on retreat, and so when I was very young, it almost was, felt like a detox, right? And go and eat kale and run. <laughs> I'd go on jogs, you know, it was kind of like a get fitness thing, or I don't know. And I would practice a lot, but... You know, over and then I would go home, and it would kind of, it would be the swing over this way, you know. And I thought my lives were very different. Retreat life was one way, home was another. 
But in some way, when we really get serious about the path, those two come together. Our life, now my life looks very much like retreat. Last year I went on a five-month retreat, and I didn't integrate longer than a few days because my life sort of paralleled the retreat now over time, the way my home looks, how things are set up, how I move about, you know, that was started to... So there wasn't this huge swinging back and forth, right, where we didn't have to be... Some of us are afraid to go home because of that compartmentalization. You know what I mean? We kind of know what's waiting. Like, ah, you know, and it doesn't feel like a day here, right? (laughs) Where all you're doing is loving yourself and all beings all day. This is beautiful, actually. This is revolution. Look what everyone else is doing, right? (laughs) Shopping and (laughs) doing. Here we're being, opening, flowering, blossoming, (coughs) learning, getting wiser, I would say that is revolution. So if you question, you know, how is this valuable, if your mind never said, what am I doing here? That, that is the power of it. And I was inspired what Donald was sharing about the youth. Of course that would be the case. You know, Dalai Lama says the same thing. He said, people that are heinous to other people, that are cruel to others, have no confidence in themselves, they have no self-esteem. And I thought that was an interesting way to put it. Like somebody who would be cruel to another has no confidence, no confidence in their true nature, no, con- none, no self-esteem at all, right? So in some way, loving ourselves and developing this is really, it is powerful. When you love yourself, you can't be manipulated, right? The media, you know, the, the machine, the wheel of samsara, they call it, you know, this great wheel that we're all that are just being fed. You know, we we're not so interested in it anymore. We don't. We're not so. The sparkles aren't so alluring anymore, right? We're like, hmm, I don't know about all that. We get kind of, we wake up a little bit more. Also, one of the things I wanted to just share a little bit was a bit of a continuation from the talk last night on wise meta was just about when we go home and how we live in the world, it's important that we learn how to let go. Letting go is a really big aspect of wisdom, impermanence and seeing how things are always changing. Right? This is a huge insight in Dharma practice. This is one of the key insights in insight meditation is to see that everything's changing, everything's moving, nothing stays the same. And there's a way that when we learn to love with this dance, we're not so scared, right? Because really we get afraid to open our heart because what if I love and then they leave? Or what if this ha- What if I get invested and it changes? It will change. You know, this is a great truth. And if we can learn to see into that and experience that and dance with that and learn to let go, you know, sometimes relationships come together, people move together for a while, and then they separate, you know. And then the job happens for a while, and then it, it changes into something else. Our bodies change. I was really, it's a bittersweet teaching letting go, isn't it? <laughs> it's something very, I was looking at my passport photo, <laughs> and I was like, wow, I really changed, you know. <laughs> I was looking like, like, it's true, it's happening, <laughs> You know, there's a way there's some like denial, like I'll just keep eating kale and wheatgrass. Of course it won't happen, right? 
That's so, you know. No amount of yoga is going to stop this process. Right? <laughs> and, you know, we can do it beautifully like Miss Bernice, you know, and go, hey, at 90 and still, you know, living well, living awake, living, you know, with an open heart and showing up. But there's a way that we kind of start to embrace impermanence as part of our metta. We love something because it appears, and we love it for the time that it's there, right? And then when it changes, we let go, right? It's like things appear and then disappear. Appear, disappear, appear. People appear and disappear. Things appear and disappear. Our objects appear and disappear, this morning I was sitting, I, have a, I used to have a huge, I kind of still do, I had a shawl obsession. And I had this one shawl, and it, this was really happened this morning. I was thinking, I was like, oh no, I think I lost that really beautiful shawl. I haven't seen it. You know, while I'm meditating up here, this thought came in my head. <laughs> and then I was thinking, but things appear and disappear. I, mean, I was like, yeah, it's gone. It's really gone. You haven't seen it in a really long time. I don't know where it is. <laughs> it could have been left any place. But again, it was like the wisdom came right after that. Things, yeah, it doesn't, nothing really belongs to any of us. We're borrowing everything while we're using it, right? For the period that this form is alive and awake. And then it's like, it will go back to the elements at some point, you know, back into the earth back, everything recycles like nature, right? We come, we appear, we disappear. Time of disappearance unknown. So that also makes life a little bit more precious, right? It's like, wow, when people are given a diagnosis, they live like they've never lived before if they're able, right? But what about, what if we do that now? Why don't don't we live now? There's a certain beauty. We're not, we cease to be afraid to love if we know it's impermanent, right? We know we have a finite period, right? We let go quicker. So this is an important part. That is wise meta, understanding that every moment is impermanent and then loving whatever appears, whatever the manifestation is. And then I just wanted to just end with one story that I thought was really I, was, I thought about it earlier when I thought another about a big moment I learned about letting go. And it's kind of a quirky story. is with a Tibetan teacher. And I didn't have time when, to come before I came in to get his name. He's still alive. He's in his late 80, 80s. But I think his name is Nyosho Kenshin Rinpoche. But I'll look it up and I'll post it because you may want to see this teacher after I tell you the story. Um, you know Panlop Rinpoche, right? Uh, Tibetan teacher, yeah, it's his teacher. So, um, so this particular teacher I had heard about, he had spent uh, like maybe fourteen or fifteen years in a cave. He was a known scholar. He was the teacher to a teacher that I really adore a lot, Panlum Rinpoche. He has an organization out of Seattle in the Tibetan tradition. And so, uh, some friends of mine. This was maybe ten years ago. Some friends of mine said, oh, you know, there's great teachers coming. And he was coming to Marin. It was put on by the Sukha City Foundation. And and they had rented out a a big hall, and it was kind of a big deal. You know, he was this kind of master, and he, and Panlip is also quite a, a, 
achieved yogi meditator on his own right and he was very adoring like my teacher's coming and so I was excited I was like great I get to meet a real master and uh, they're gonna answer all my questions you know so um, we it was a two-day teaching so the first day we we come in and then he comes in and he's quite small maybe no more than I don't even know if he was five feet tall um, so he comes in and he was he was pretty yeah he's almost 99 maybe 88 89 um, so he was, you know, older, so he had an attendant. And as he came in, I thought that was weird because where he sat, they had a little altar for him. But there was all these toys up there. I was like, why would a master? It was like little zingy things and like, and little, it was just toys, like kind of, I was like, oh, he must, that's like he's going to play with toys, you know? So I was like, okay, you know, so I'm sitting there and I'm really waiting, right? Like I'm going to get something from this teacher, right? So I already come in with this kind of pounce mind, you know, like, give me something, I'm here, right? Because I was suffering a lot and I, I needed something, right, I thought. So he sits there and, and he's looking around at us for a very long time, which was awkward, right? You know when you go beyond, like, the comfort moment, and you're kind of like, okay, let's start, you know, and let's do it. <laughs> like, and, and then um, he, he really, he, he didn't give any teachings for the first hour. He had us singing these very long songs that were translated Tibetan folk songs about the pure lands. And and it was really in this weird, like, melodic way. And it was like, we will all meet. And and it had us going on like that for like an hour, and I was getting so irritated. Like, (laughs) I don't want to sing this anymore. I want the teaching. So then then after he was done singing, he was just very cheery, you know. And he spoke through a translator. He would know. I come to find out he knew a lot of English, but he preferred to use the translator. But mostly he was just looking at us, and then every maybe 20 minutes he would say, relax, just relax. And I was like, relax. <laughs> the translator would say, Rinpoche says relax. Rinpoche says relax your mind. And I was like, what the? You know, and I was getting more and more, like this irritation was building up. So then, um, so then the day went on, and then the afternoon was more of the same, starting with these stories, and, and then making, not, not the stories, the songs, and we were singing and singing and singing. And then he um, had one of his toys was this monkey, this little monkey, and the monkey had this little clapper, and he would touch the button, and it would go, wild thing, and... and, and, and really loud. You know those things you see in like the drugstores and you're like, who would get those things? But anyway, so it was about that big, right? And it would clap really loud because it had bells, like these little thimble things right here. And the music was really loud recording. Anyway, he would press it and that sent him into hysterics. He thought <laughs> it was so funny. And like, so all afternoon, when I think the teachings were about to come, he would just stare at us and then go like this, and then, and then laugh like it was the first time. Like, I was like, we just did this, like, and we're doing it again, and then we would sing songs again, and then by the end of the day, I was just like, oh my God, I just, I, I can't deal with this anymore, and so I was like, okay, I was with a friend, and she was like, I don't know what's going on, he's like, knows the nature of mine, he's like the most wise teacher, I don't understand why he's doing this, so she was confused, but more cheery, like, oh well, I just like being here, but I was really like, I need the teaching, the next day we get up, right, the morning starts off, because they do 
two and a half, three hour in the morning, and then we have a break, a long break, and then the afternoon session. All morning, it was the same with the monkey, and then he had this <laughs> little zinger thing, and he would go like that and laugh and laugh, and even his you know, translator was just sitting there translating the relaxed statement every 20 minutes, and I was like, I cannot believe this. Went on and on. I never got the teachings, right? And it was just relax, relax. This is such a true story. So then, so he was leaving. It was Sunday night, and so finally it was over, and I was so irritated and frustrated all day. I mean, it was just like my mind was just a mess. And, and you know, and so he was getting ready to leave, and we had just sung like a 30-minute song, right? And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> really just so aversive, right? Like, ah. Oh. And so then they're getting ready to take him out and so he gets up and, and he's just waving like this to everyone and then he, he's like waving to me because I was in the back all like uh, like you know just all the attitude and, and he was like and, and then I watched him walk out and I was bowing very low you know humble but irritated and um, as soon as he walked out I don't know what happened I burst into tears and I was I said it extremely loud I'm gonna miss him so much <laughs> and then as I drove back and my friend was like you're like sobbing and it was like some uncontrollable thing I was like that's some transmission I don't know and so on the way home I realized the whole thing he was trying to teach all of us was to let go like we were so graspy, like give me something, you're a man, I want. And all he kept saying for two days was relax, have fun, let go. That, and I really, after that, I was like, I gotta lighten up. <laughs> I'm getting way too intense about Dharma, right? And that was a huge teaching, and what a radical way to do it. And I did not get it until later that night, and after talking to some of his other students, and going, yeah, he kind of can get crazy wisdom. He has a streak of rebellion. If he, people are leaning in, he'll give the, a certain teaching. So we were all a little, you know. So anyway, that's my advice, is to just, don't take it too seriously. <laughs> don't become a deadly serious Buddhist, please. Right? Just... Lighten up, still have fun. Let go. Thank you. So now we will sing one of those songs. (laughs) (laughs) Donald found it. (laughs) You guys would be going crazy if we made you do that. That was so great. It's a great, beautiful story. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's a good one. (laughs) Good teaching. So we want to open it up now. If you, if anyone has a reflection or question, Um, and again, we'll we'll um, we'll repeat them so everyone can hear. Please. Oh yeah. Instead of getting batted around. Um, yeah. And really, how do you do that? Yeah. So questions about how to ground further in the body. Maybe I'll say a few things and, and see if Spring also wants to add um, some some reflections. How to 
stay grounded in the body and not be knocked around so long. So they're, they're, um, for many of us, it's a longer term development to really be grounded. You know, if we have um, conditioning that's taken us away from the body. And I remember I had this really powerful insight when I was, I remember I was, uh, I was like a student in Germany for a year when I was a student. And one day I was just, I had to, uh, to go to my classes, I had to walk about two hours along a river every, every morning. And one morning I just said, I'm thinking all the time. I'm just like consciousness on a pole. <laughs> and it was a distressing thought actually, you know, because I, I realized I wasn't really in my body that much, even though I had actually been very interested in physical things. I'd actually been a competitive swimmer for 10 years, you know, and done, you know, done a lot of sports and so forth, but I, I wasn't aware, you know. Sometimes the training for sports leads one not to want to be aware of the body. Um, but, um, and so it actually, uh, there's, a, there's a whole training. So there's both, there's both um, kind of a longer term training and then there's some stuff we can do in the short term. And the longer term is to really come more into the body. We can, <clears throat> we can give a lot of emphasis in our meditations. Uh, we could, um, many of us do yoga or body disciplines and to really cultivate body awareness. Some of the practices that help develop the center, um, again, one can do it in a meditative way. You know, I actually did meditations primarily with my whole body for actually for several years, also focused on just on the belly or the hara area, just as a meditation to have that get stronger. So you can do that. You can do meditations, you could do um, uh, martial arts will go in that direction, some yoga practices and so forth, just to enter more into the body. Um, In the short run, you can do it, you know, maybe by just... uh, doing more walking meditation, anything that's going to get us into the body is going to be helpful. So I know, again, one thing that I did when I was first uh, learning to meditate, I was a student and I didn't have a car and I took a lot of public transportation. I walked a lot and I just said, you know, I'm complaining about not enough time to meditate. I'm going to take every moment of walking to do walking meditation. And that helped me come more into the body um, in the short run, you can do practices like just be aware as much as you can of like the hand, just your hands, your feet, be at a meeting and just be aware of the hands. It kind of, anything that kind of takes us out of what I, what I uh, sometimes like to call the uh, monopoly of the automatic mind, you know, which is just going on and on. Anything which breaks that, even 10% has an impact and helps us to be so concrete practices, be aware of the hands, the feet on the floor, hands on the knees. Um, In the short run, that can be very helpful. Do more walking meditation. Can keep the attention sometimes in the center area. Also that will tend to try that, you know, if if there's a distressing experience, you can actually just try to come back in the body, bring it into the meditations, really, like when you when you have you know when you're exploring experience, really see what it's like in the body. Become a student of the body, and we have 
we have retreats here which are really focused on um, developing awareness of the body. Spring, you taught the last one, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. Do you want to add to that anything? Okay, good. Please, yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Thank Emily. Thank you. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I asked this in a question, so you can maybe you don't have time to respond to written, but maybe you can talk about it here. I have a question about when your dear friend becomes the difficult person, <clears throat> or vice versa. Through Meta, I came to Meta by practicing with my difficult person, who then became a dear friend again. So I was hoping you could just share some wisdom and insight about those two people coming in out of those two different categories. If I maybe Donald want to take it, um, I think that you know the we'll have people cycle through all of them. <laughs> you know, maybe we fall in love with someone and they're like, wow, and then they become the difficult person for a while and then they're great again and then, you know, and then the neutral person becomes a dear friend maybe at some point and, and you know, someone we really love. And I think it's kind of normal, you know, on some level. Just, and also while we're purifying our own mind, you know, in some way, maybe they haven't done anything, but it just our minds going through a, a process <laughs> of in the reflection. You know, I think it's okay. Yeah, we just maybe uh, since we're not going for extreme kind of concentration here, I, I think it's okay to just make some changes if that happens in the categories. If the dear friend changes to difficult or vice versa. Um, we just switch switch it out. Uh, yeah, not so much a problem. Yeah, thank you. There's a hand over there. How do you find that on a moment-by-moment moment basis? Like, you know, I think I asked because, like, even this, this evening, I suddenly, like, got into a self-critical mind, um, and then, then I had to really, like, think about meta again. But, you know, here when you're sitting in meditation, Mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 
Yeah, yeah, so the question is about uh, how to bring metta into moment-to-moment experience and uh, in particular in, in daily life, in activities like washing the dishes and sometimes the, the mind can get triggered really quickly, right? So um, first thing is, is metta is a practice, which means we simply uh, do our best. And we probably could um, see here, while we're here at the retreat, uh, how the metta was maybe in, in the times outside of the scheduled meditations, right? How was metta when you were brushing your teeth? Uh, or how could that spirit be there? Um, I think that uh, I think that what's helpful, what what I have found helpful, is to actually carve out some times and some activities during the day, where which you dedicate to metta, and it could just be ten minutes, uh, ten minutes once or twice a day. Like I, I uh, recently have been doing metta practice uh, for any meals that I have by myself, like for the first 10 minutes, right? Much like being in the dining hall. And I really keep the boundaries and it supports the practice. And so anything that supports our practice being regular like that, and now, you know, there is a association. Oh, oh, it's a meal, metta, you know? Or you could uh, have, it could be you take a walk uh, once a day for 15 minutes and you do metta. So I think having those places where, where you cultivate metta helps a lot. And then you gradually bring it out into other activities. So to have these kind of uh, um, boundaried times and places for metta. Um, other, there's a lot we could say. Maybe we'll say more tomorrow. But the, the, other, the other thing is to maybe just to, um, I think staying with the body also helps a lot. Like maybe sometimes some people really have that quality of kind of staying with the area of the heart. A little harder, but I think. And maybe we'll say more things tomorrow about that. And then I'll just add one quick thing. Um, You know, to decondition a very strong tendency of mine is possible. It takes time because even all the neuroscience shows us this now that we can but there's a groove there. <laughs> so we got, it's like, okay, we're changing in a different path, right? And so you've been doing that this whole time, right? Your mind has got a new, it's developed a new pathway even this quickly, but that old one is kind of really deep. So we just, we see if we're not diligent, it slips, right? If we're not diligent or we, you know, can go. So just to have patience, I think, with yeah. that process. Patience with the with um, the hard hard stuff and the very deep tendencies. Yeah, and they, they take time. I found that in my first retreats, there were many wonderful changes of my most superficial problems. <laughs> Please, yeah. Um, yeah. Spring, I, I have a question. I love the teaching: relax, have fun, let go. Um, and I also really think that we need to be diligent because we do have these grooves that are so deeply ingrained. And so for me, I'm trying to find the balance. Like, how do I stay really awake, but also be at ease and 
and be having fun and playing, um, but not just go to sleep and let all the conditioning come back. Yeah. I think that's a wonderful question. She was saying that um, we have these conditioned habits of mind, so there's a certain way we want to have this vigilant kind of, you know, we want to be working on it, but she loves the idea of relax, like the story, <laughs> ease, have fun, play with the toys, <laughs> you know. I think uh, it's a wonderful question, and I think even for myself, I'm trying to find that. How do we bring the two together where that we're, we are doing our practice, and there's this relaxed, playful ease. Like there's a way in which sometimes even on retreat you see people look very somber and, and, and there's a certain like way we practice with a deadly seriousness of getting, I'm going to uproot this, right? And then we miss the joy, right? And we're getting, we're striving, we're forgetting that it's already in us. That really we have to just kind of let go. But there is a certain letting go with a certain wisdom that's paying attention and I just think we have to, it's like some kind of balancing act that we learn to do more and more. We bring in the joy, right? We bring in the mindfulness. Because they go together. The interesting thing is that the cause of concentration is happiness, right? There's some way in which they're linked. And so we just explore. We see where we go off, where the joy becomes kind of checked out. Right, where it's not really fun and maybe we turned into grasping and we're not present. And then we're like, okay, let's balance that. We see when we're getting way too serious and trying to grasp over here, like trying to get something out of the experience or, you know, not be patient. And I just think it's, yeah, I think every, we're all learning that. I know I am working with that too, how to have happiness and joy and still stay vigilant, right? Still stay mindful. That's a better word, awake, right? I don't know. You might have some thoughts on that too, Donald. It's a, just a great question, yeah. and yeah. For, for me, uh, you know, the uh, it's to see what one's personal style is. And some of us, like I, I probably wa- uh, was conditioned to be more of a doer, right? The doer, the diligent one, and so forth. And so, to actually know that of oneself and emphasize the other aspect, you know, so so to emphasize the ease or the joy or the play. So after um, my training um, as a Dharma teacher, I uh, was enrolled in the uh, clown school of San Francisco. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So it's just those, yeah, and I think for everyone it's going to be a bit different, you know. But I know somehow we make this process extra hard. I do see where I create. My ch- and that was what the joke was of that teacher. Like, you're all trying to get something way to, you know, go in the opposite direction right now. But still, it was still confusing. It's like, okay, I don't want to just be playing wild thing monkey all day. <laughs> I guess I could do that with mindfulness and that would be fine too, right? I, you know, it's a really good question though. Okay. Should I take that? So the question is about um, thinking about getting rid of the TV uh, to what? To facilitate metta practice? 
And is this an extreme choice? Um, um, could be very wise. <laughs> and you know what? Uh, it's not an irreversible choice. There are, always, there are plenty of people who at any moment will be willing to sell you TVs. <laughs> but but I, I, I was making light a little bit, but it's actually, I think, an important question because it's really... It's a big question about uh, prioritizing. When, when I work uh, one-on-one with people, for quite a number of people, the core issue is how can I uh, get my priorities clear in my life? And sometimes it means simplifying. Sometimes it means, uh, we sometimes use the word renunciation or, or just saying, I don't need to do that. Or for other people, it's maybe not getting rid of the TV but having some boundaries. It's, it's an issue probably for a lot of people I work with. Uh, it's very wise for them to set boundaries, no TV, no internet after 9, 8, 9 p.m. or something. Because you know, a lot of people get hooked and it's stay up late, gets too late, they don't have time to practice in the morning. Right? And so, um, so it's both, uh, you know, it's, I think the, the most important thing is the wise, you know, wise use of contemporary technology is a big issue for a lot of people. Yeah. I say get rid of it. That's <laughs> 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 <Just> my opinion. <laughs> I have a TV, but you can't see it anywhere. Only you know it's there. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a TV. How, how, how much longer should we go? I was thinking maybe just a couple more questions. Okay. And that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe uh, two more? Maybe two please, more. Yeah. Please. And then there was one hand over here for okay. a long time. Oh. So maybe here and then here. Yeah. Uve, yeah. and then uh, please. Yeah, when we were talking about uh, patience, I was reminded of a um, other poem by Rilke, which I can't recite in total, but I remember the last uh, verse, which basically goes like this. If we stay long enough with the questions, oh, yeah. someday, possibly, <laughs> the answers will emerge towards us. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Letters, letter to a young poet. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If we, if we uh, somehow, we, I think he was, an, he was answering the poet who asked him all the, you know, what's the meaning of this, the meaning of that. In a letter to a friend of his. Yeah. And he, he responded that uh, some, some answers are not possible now because essentially you're not mature enough. Right? And you have to really love the questions and then sometime in the future you will live into the answers. Right? Yeah. And Mm-hmm. and these other qualities. And I'm wondering if you've encountered teachings about nature in relationship to the meta practice. Um, I think that, you know, in some way that the, this practice um, 
And these ways are very much earth-based. Earth the Buddha sat on the earth for five years. I don't think, and, and having got a cabin one time and did a solo retreat for a few months where I did similar practices, there's something about being outside that makes you radically awake. Sitting under a tree, sitting on the earth, if you practice there, you don't check out like you do you know, inside something. And I think that there is something really beautiful about those practices, and there is something about nature that's very compelling to sit outside, to sit with the trees, to sit by the ocean, to sit, but there is this energy of, you know, that we can tap into. Um, you know, there's a whole, there's uh, one of our dear friends, um, somebody I teach with a lot, um, Mark, um, who teach Awaken the Wild. Mark, what's Coleman. Coleman. I can't believe I spaced out on his last name. Sorry. <laughs> one of my best friends. So, <laughs> sorry, Mark, if you're out there. Uh, so, uh, Mark, yeah, he does these uh, really beautiful treat, retreats in nature. And, and there's loads of them happening more. You can backpack and hike, and they do solo overnights out and sit. And, and people come back from retreats like that really, really... Uh, touched in a deep way. There's something about being in the land. And even for him to teach them, it's just this, just this being out in that uh, environment, practicing is just radical and beautiful. So there's a whole, um, you can check his work and read his book, Awake in the Wild, or sign up for a retreat and explore that with him and the people who come on those retreats. There's a, there's a big movement towards that. And, and I've think it's great. And even day-longs here on the land with him and other teachers in nature. So, yeah, that's what I would say. Maybe just two short pieces to add. Um, you know, all of these teachings came out of people who spent almost all their time outside in the forest. <clears throat> and that still would be the case if you go to a monastery in Thailand or Burma. Most of them. <clears throat> And there's a lot of emphasis. Uh, I was thinking two principles. So I'll, I'll just add those. Um, the very strong emphasis on the teaching that uh, there's not a fundamental distinction between inner and outer, and between humans and the natural world. You know, that kind of distinction is the basis of. Uh, Western culture for quite some time, you know, maybe 2,500, 4,000 years, depending on interpretation. <clears throat> and there's a sense that the practice really points to the way that uh, we, we study our own nature. And we see that you know, there are practices where one studies the elements in oneself and really see the, kind of the uh, seamless... Mm relationship of what we call outer and what we call inner. And, and that's connected with a deepening sense of interdependence, which is really the basis for metta. You know, that, that we have a sense of, I am like the tree, or I am like the animal, like we find with indigenous traditions, where, you know, there are formal relationships with the, you know, the raven clan or the, you know, the the uh, eagle clan or whatever. And there's much more of a sense or, you know, we're all kind of together and we're interdependent. 
And I think that that sense is, again, the basis for metta because it cuts through that sense of we're really different. You know? and, and so I think it leads more to a sense of uh, care and of uh, appreciation of, of other beings. And, you know, and the Buddha's teaching was for all beings. It wasn't all human beings mm-hmm. right? for metta. Yeah. So it's really, uh, you know, val- valuing that, that quality of uh, uh, awareness. And then even some of the, uh, and some of the Chinese Buddhists even wanted to radicalize that further and <clears throat> bring it to all beings, plants, stones, mm-hmm. and so forth. Yeah. Makes me wonder a little bit about the, uh, you know, the self-loathing. Mm. Um, and our, discon- our lack yeah. of connection with, yeah. with nature and the connection. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, it's very related. I mean, yeah. And that's why I love the idea of more people sitting on the earth, doing metta, loving the earth, falling in love, and we'll, we'll save it, we'll protect it, because it's like an extension. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not meaning by my comments to like judge harshly or criticize the contemporary Western society. It has its own evolutionary impulse and beautiful things, obviously, obviously problems. So it's not to, uh, and I, you know, I think in the long run, we're trying to work out, a, a, we have to, not we're trying to, we have to work out a different relationship to the earth. That's clear. And these teachings, it's clear it has to be on the basis of a deep sense of interdependence and care. It's not, you know, not just a, you know, an option for some people interested in the earth. It's actually an imperative for the species you know, to, to survive, has to come more to that understanding. So metta, very important for all that. <laughs> all these great reasons, yeah. yes. Yeah. <laughs> so you can be, you know, metta, what, how should we say it? Metta activist. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you all. It was nice to have something that just felt relevant to taking some little gems home. And and again, uh, we'll do some walking practice and then come back for our chant. Should we do it a little later? Or just... Mm, I think this maybe... um... What do you think? Uh, no chant. I would say just come back at the, at the regular time. Nine o'clock, okay. And this time, for the chant, we've been rehearsing, right? <laughs> we've been doing call and response. Now, all together. Yes. At nine. So, uh, if you haven't come to the chanting, it's quite, quite wonderful. We'll do that. Does that sound okay? Chant Please. your heart out tonight. Just <laughs> so coming back at nine. Yeah, sound that's okay? great. Yeah. Okay. Great. So come back just in a little over 15 minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.